If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Between 1940 and 1943, a group of Polish diplomats and Jewish activists forged and smuggled Latin American identity documents. Their aim was to help thousands of Jews facing extermination escape the Holocaust. In today's episode, historian and author Roger Morehouse speaks to Lauren Good about the so-called Wadosh Group and their incredibly risky rescue mission and asks why it hasn't been better remembered. We're discussing your new book, The Forgers, The Forgotten History of the Holocaust's Most Audacious Rescue Operation today. The Wadosh operation you detail depended on what you describe in the book as a strange legalism of the Nazis. Could you please explain for our listeners what this legalism was and how the Wadosh operation used it to save the lives of Jews? Yeah, it's one of those sort of peculiarities. I think when we... When we think about the Holocaust, we imagine that it was sort of a, in a sense, a sort of frenzy of of wild killing, which to some extent it was. I mean, there's a lot of examples of that. But the actual killing phase, this sounds terrible to sort of use these words, but the killing phase was kind of prefaced by a delegalization process on behalf of the Nazis. So the creation of of what we can call an extra legal space which meant that all of those people, all of those Jews that they decided to um, to exterminate in various ways and in various places, first had to be sort of put into this extra legal space where they effectively had no rights, no representation, nothing at all. In a sense, they had to create a situation where legally the, the German state, the Nazi state, could do what it wanted with those people. There was no legal obstacle to them exterminating them. And for the German Jews, so Jews of the Reich, for example, when they were deported eastwards to the ghettos, which starts in 1941, one of the paragraphs of law that 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 deportation notice was based on, as an example, stated that as soon as they crossed the German frontier and left Germany, their German citizenship lapsed. So effectively, they became non-people. Now, of course, in the chaos of deportation, those German Jews didn't, you know, that was the last thing on their minds, precisely what their legal status was. But it was important for the German state because it did then mean that effectively the German occupation regime then in Poland, where a lot of them ended up, could do what it wanted with them when it decided what it was going to do after, you know, the ghettos are a kind of a holding pattern. Once it's decided what it wants to do, extermination, then there is no legal obstacle or bureaucratic obstacle to doing it. The only obstacles are moral, which doesn't count in this case, and logistical. So importantly... What the Wadosh group was doing was kind of reinserting 
a legal obstacle to the killing of those individuals. So they were creating, they, they, were, they were forging, and had a real sort of cottage industry going in, in Switzerland. They were forging Latin American passports, primarily Paraguayan ones, which were produced illegally. And they're produced actually in the normal way. So there's a question mark as to whether they're being forged at all, but they're illegally produced. We can say that. A notarized copy is made, and this is then sent in either by post, surprisingly, or by courier, is sent in to the recipient, most of them in, in the ghettos of, of occupied Poland. And what it does is it reasserts that sort of legal obstacle, because the, the individual concerned, the recipient of that passport, can basically sort of hold it up when he's about to be deported to Auschwitz or whatever's going to happen to him. He can hold this thing up and say, look, you can't do this to me. I'm a Paraguayan citizen. And for the Germans, they go, oh, God, uh, right, well, we, could, we have to think, you know, plan B. Plan B is to, you know, take you, so put you somewhere else, put you in a different camp. And they gradually develop this scheme by which they, they sort of collect foreign Jews, and they want to use these foreign Jews for political leverage for one point, but also to, in a sense, exchange them for Germans being held abroad. So they, became, they become known as exchange Jews, and they're kept, a lot of them are kept in, in Bergen-Belsen concentration camp for the remainder of the war. So this is not a it's not a get out of get out of trouble free card by any means because you know even if you're lucky and it's accepted and so on you become an exchange Jew you still have to survive Belson very often for 2 years which is a difficult thing to do. But it does at least get you out of that mechanism of the Holocaust. So that's what the what's what the Wadosh troop group was trying to do. And in a sense you know because the Germans wanted to have these exchange Jews for political leverage, in a sense, they colluded in this scheme because you know they they wanted those Jews for political leverage just as much as the Wadosh group was trying to save them. And your book begins with a story at an individual level, which beautifully underpins the impact of the Wadosh operation. Before we delve into the broader details, could you please repeat that story here? Yeah, of course. I always like to sort of start any chapter or any section with 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 something sort of a dramatic narrative or something personal, just to sort of bring it home. I think the, the worst thing possible is to start a chapter with, you know, on the 5th of July, 1923, or whatever it is. So I, I try and, try and uh, you know, bring it alive in that way to draw the reader in. Uh, and I came across this brilliant account of a chap called Heinz Lichtenstein. And he had been a German Jew who had um, emigrated with his family, uh, fled Germany, gone to Holland before 1939, so saw, saw the writing on the wall, as many did, made his life in Holland. And then, of course, the, the Nazis catch up with him in 1940 because they invade Holland and France and so on. He then goes through, as many Dutch and German Jews did, you know, goes through Vesterborg uh, deportation camp. And subsequently, he was actually sent to Theresienstadt, unusually. Most of, them, most of them went direct from Vesterborg to Auschwitz. He was sent to Theresienstadt. And in 1944, he was due to be deported. He, was, uh, he didn't know this, but it, the, the group that he was being sent with, which is 2,500 people, were being sent to Auschwitz. And the vast majority, about 80%, statistically about 80%, would have been murdered on arrival because they weren't considered fit to work. So he was on that, on that list. And he had this Paraguayan passport that I've just described, which he'd uh, arranged while he was still in, in Holland on, in the occupation. And he'd never really thought much of it. He thought, well, it was a, you know, it was a bit dodgy. You know, in the same way as I suppose you'd think, well, you know, it's, it's a false document. How good can it be? What use could it be? And he'd never really thought much about it. But he thought in that moment where he's about to be deported, he thought, well, if there's a moment to try it, it's now. Uh, 
So he's brandishing this this piece of paper. He goes up to the guard and he says, you know, you, you essentially, I'm a Paraguayan citizen. It's taken to the superior officer who takes him to, to, you know, up the chain. And he's pulled out of the line. And instead of two and a half thousand prisoners being sent to Auschwitz, it was 2,499. And we can see that from the, uh, from the deportation record, which is remarkable. And the one that's missing is Heinz. So... He's, at, he's pulled out the line, he's sent back to the barrack block, he's given a slip of paper which says, you know, Ausgeschieden, which means kind of pulled out, means, means uh, uh, reserved. And he survives the war, as does, as does his family. And I, and I was in, in contact with his uh, granddaughter, who lives in the US, who related this story. And, and the key thing, which is interesting about all of this, so, as I said, he, did, he never knew where, the, where, the, um, where the, the passport had come from. It, you know, he knew the person that he'd dealt with, you know, his immediate contact. But beyond that, and who, who'd actually made the passport and all the rest of it, he had no clue about. And this is kind of part of the problem with the story and part of the reason that the story had been forgotten, is that for those individuals who were saved by these, we call them Wadosh passports, were saved by these Wadosh passports, the vast majority of them had no clue where that passport had come from. So it never became part of the narrative. It never became part of their story. There was just this mysterious document that, you know, meant that they were sent to a camp rather than Auschwitz, and in some way they survived the war. So that, to some extent, explains why the story was forgotten for so long. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. And let's now look at the broader story of this rescue operation. How did it begin? Very organic. Again, I think there's a, an assumption when, you know, when we look, when we imagine maybe the Holly, Hollywood version of this, of this story, it will be of six men, three Polish diplomats in Switzerland, including the ambassador who was uh, um, Alexander Wadosh, who gives his name to the to the scheme, three Polish diplomats, one Polish local staff, and then two Jewish activists, also of Polish extraction. 
Um, so six of them, and we and we, you know, as I said, the Hollywood version. We might imagine them sort of in a in a in a smoky room, you know, having a cigar and having a scotch and discussing the um, discussing the, the the ongoing Holocaust and what are we going to do about it. As I said, that's the Hollywood version. It's, life is rarely like that. It developed in a very sort of organic way. The embassy was already involved in 1940, so Wadosh only arrives in 1940 in Switzerland. Already in 1940, it's involved with assisting refugees, Polish refugees particularly, and even Polish soldiers who end up who had fought in France and had and had basically sort of fought their way into Switzerland as as the sort of fighting retreat into Switzerland. So Wadosh had been involved with negotiating on their behalf and then also sort of setting up all sorts of um you know networks to to help those um Polish prisoners so they they're already kind of intimately involved in all of this stuff and then increasingly through late 4041 you're getting requests actually from Polish Jews in the in the Baltic states particularly Lithuania and in what had been eastern Poland which had been annexed by the Soviets in 1939 who are looking for a way out. And one of the ways out that were all, had already been discovered by this point was, was via Lithuania and then across the Soviet Union, which was done by a chap called Kiyuna Sugihara, who's a, a Japanese consul in Lithuania. And this worked quite well. And something like, I think, 2,000 plus primarily Polish Jews had already escaped through that particular network. And this was quite well known in diplomatic circles. So you had people then coming to the Polish legation in Switzerland and saying, can we do the same thing? Can we do something similar? Can you produce documents to help people out? And they ended up using this local honorary consul, whose name was Rudolf Hugli, who was a local Swiss uh, lawyer, but he acted as the honorary consul for Paraguay. And he'd already been involved in producing illegal documents in 1938 during the Anschluss crisis. So he was he was probably known to you know the the official circles in in Bern in Switzerland already at that point that he was someone that might be amenable or at least bribable. I mean actually he's not particularly venal individual. He's doing it really out of principle rather than just for money. But they approach uh, Rudolf Hugli who who starts supplying blank passports to them, um, which all they have to do then is to fill out these passports, attach photographs. They're sent back to Hugli. They're stamped and signed, made official. And then return to the to the to the applicant. And the first people to apply effectively are, you know, friends and family, acquaintances of those, primarily of those sort of Jewish activists and, and the Jewish Jewish circles around them. So the Polish diplomats are really just acting as sort of facilitators for that for that process. And then in 1941, as the as the Holocaust really gets going in occupied Poland. So from the summer of 41 onwards, with Operation Barbarossa, the invasion of the Soviet Union, then the Holocaust really gets going. You get this really sort of systematic killing Polish Jews and others. At that point, it begins to ramp up and the rumours spread that this is a possibility. And many, many more people start sending these sort of coded letters, often with passport photos included. But saying you know things like oh, i'm sending this to my uncle who lives in switzerland and i'm sending the photo to remind you what i look like you know it's kind of it's kind of quite crude code and and you'd send within that you'd say you know within the letter you'd give code as to what your birth date was and things like that so that you had the, the and some of the code i write about this in the book some of the code that they used was was really complex using using sort of corruptions of Hebrew words and so on. So if you didn't understand Hebrew as the recipient, you would be completely puzzled 
by what was being said in the letter. So it's really that that aspect is a really fascinating one of how they actually, you know, got these applications in effectively. But it really ramped up through end of 41 into into 42. It really ramps up and it becomes, as I said before, really like a sort of cottage industry of producing these Latin American passports, mainly Paraguayan, but others as well. And later also these other document identity documents, which were known as promesas, promises, which was basically an official document signed by the honorary consul that just said, you know, we recognize you and give your name and date of birth as a Paraguayan citizen. But it didn't require, you know, a photograph. It didn't require a physical passport and so on. So it's a much, much easier and cheaper thing to do. But it was a it was even more flimsy than the forged passport. So this is what they're doing from 41, 42 onwards. And it, it, it actually works tremendously well. By the January of 1944, the estimate then, and by that stage, they've kind of been shut down. They've been shut down by the, by the Swiss police um, under pressure from the Gestapo. By that time, they've kind of stopped producing these passports. But by that stage, they reckoned that they'd produced passports and documents for about 10,000 people, which makes it one of the biggest um, Holocaust re rescue operations of the war. The tragedy, of course, as I said before, is that only a fraction of those 10,000 would actually survive the war because, as I said, you know, various reasons, but a lot of them were sent to the camps. You had to then survive Belsen or, or elsewhere, which was difficult. Uh, and then there was this whole diplomatic wrangle about whether those passports should be recognized, which involves the latter half of the book is basically this sort of diplomatic wrestle between... Polish diplomatic circles and the Latin American governments basically saying, well, we need you to recognize these, these, these papers, otherwise these people will be killed. And the Latin American government's kind of going, well, we don't really want to do that because they're fake, you know. So, and that, that becomes a big theme in the second half of the book. And you've just said there that only a small proportion, sadly, of that 10,000 did survive. Can we put any estimate on how many people this operation did save? There's some very good work was done on this quite recently by the Pilecki Institute in Warsaw, which is a sort of um, a 20th century history um, research institute. And they start, they did a lot of the groundwork on this. So a lot of this, all of the archival work as well, you know, I have to thank them for doing the groundwork on this. But they also looked at this, this question of, of kind of collecting survivors. They pulled together what they call the Wadosh list, which is, you know, all of those... Um, involved with the with the project or some of them kept lists of what they were doing it was it was kind of they had to be quite careful i mean they are in switzerland so they're relatively safe but they're still involved in illegal activities so they they were being rather cautious but they kept sort of lists and and some of those lists have survived so if you extrapolate from the the, the partial lists that that, that that have survived then you end up with something close to that ten thousand, which they themselves estimated in 1944. So that kind of bears, bears itself out. So we have partial lists of recipients. And from that, you can then kind of work out, you know, and track individual fates from that as well. At last count, I think it's something like 850 that we know survived the Holocaust uh, with the Wadosh passport. That doesn't necessarily mean it was because of the Wadosh passport that they survived. There were, you know, they could have been trying other other aspects as well. They could have been trying, you know, they could have had f other false identities. They could have had papers for Palestine. There were various other me measures. And, and the better connected you were, the more money you had, the more, the more chances you had for, you know, to try different methods. So it's not necessar necessarily just, 
you know, because they had a Wajosh passport that that's the reason they survive. But, you know, it's a, it's probably a fair assumption. So we've got about 850 that we know. There's a very interesting kind of statistical exercise, which I go through in the, in the epilogue of the book. We can estimate, I think, that between two and 3,000 might have survived. One sort of key aspect, I suppose, of this book, by trying to publicize the story much more widely, is the hope that perhaps people will come forward and and this will ring a bell in some sort in in some way that you know there'll be some folk memory if you like within the family of you know a paraguayan passport or a honduran passport or you know this piece of paper that saved grandpa or grandma or great grandfather whoever it is and that piece of paper never had any explanation attached to it so it was never never became part of the narrative but you know we we can now actually piece that together and i'm hopeful that that this book coming out will will trigger a few memories for people and it might might bring some more people out of the woodwork and considering the scale of this operation why do you think it has been forgotten very good question i think that on the that there are two aspects here and we have to think about how the holocaust has been written about how holocaust historiography has come into being and there are two levels of this so there's sort of an official level i.e. using official documents that, that is, is one sort of strand of the way the narrative is told. And the other strand is through individual reminiscences. So the first one, the individual ref- reminiscences, as I said, they're relatively few. We've got, we know about 800 f- survivors, for example. For those to sort of, if you like, sort of feed into the wider narrative, you needed someone to survive on a Wadosh passport, then have kept a diary or written memoirs or have some papers left behind, which then feed into the into the historical process. So that's quite a difficult ask in itself. And then at the same time, as I said before, the vast majority of people who had these papers never knew where they came from. So it just became a sort of a mysterious document, you know, part of the family history, but it never had any sort of narrative attached to it. So it didn't, it, it, in a sense, it just sort of didn't become part of the narrative. Put crudely, the Wadosh story or the story behind these passports didn't feed into the narrative from that level, from the level of personal reminiscence. And then on the official level, it didn't feed in either, primarily because all of those involved in this on the on the diplomatic side so the diplomats themselves and then their superiors in the government in exile in london polish government in exile in london they all found themselves out on a limb you know on the rubbish heap of history in 1945 when the communists took over in poland the communists come take over you know hard on the heels of the red army and the government in exile effectively the representatives of the of the pre-war republic find themselves not recognized by Western governments. They find themselves out on a limb. The the government in in exile stays in in London for the next 40-odd years as a sort of a rump, you know, that's still having cabinet meetings and still has presidents and prime ministers, but it's, it's no longer governing a country. The country is gone. It's become communist. So they kept their archive going, which is still in London, it's still very, very useful, but nobody was interested, you know, because the world had moved on and and Warsaw was now in the control of the communists. So all of that material that that was held there also didn't sort of feed into the into the Holocaust narrative. 
on an official level. So for two reasons, it didn't sort of feature in the in the in the Holocaust story as the as the narrative of the Holocaust developed through the 1960s and onwards. And it took until you know the last ten years or so, and and particularly a, a, a recent Polish ambassador to Bern in Switzerland um, called Jakob Kumoch. And he was the first one. He was sort of tipped off about this by, you know, at, a, at an embassy reception of all things, uh, and was told that this building that they were in was a holy place. And he said, "What do you mean?" And he was told, "Well, you know, there was this Holocaust rescue operation that ran from here," and he knew nothing about that. And he and he set some of his staff off to start re- start researching it. So really, that's where it sort of came from. And they and they you know, did a lot of research in the Swiss archives, German archives, Polish archives, and so on, and began to piece all of this together. So until that point, it was effectively forgotten. You discuss the importance of this scheme as well in the book due to the general failure of the international community to assist Jews during the Holocaust. What do you think were the reasons for this? Yeah, it's a, it's an important strand of the book, I think, is to point up the fact that the general Western or general outside response to the Holocaust, even once we know it's going on, which is from the end of 42 onwards, is really very lackluster, apathetic, I think is the word you could probably best use. And you can see this right at the beginning. I start the book, the first chapter, a lot of it is talking about a conference that was held in Evian in 1938, which of course is before the Holocaust gets going, but it's very indicative of Western and outside attitudes to the the Jewish predicament. So the, the, the Evian conference had been provoked by the Anschluss, by the German annexation of Austria, uh, in March of 1938, uh, and that prompted this huge, you know, outflowing of Jews in this this uh, migration crisis with, you know, refugee Jew- Jews desperately trying to leave Austria in the months that followed, and the conference is called basically to try and deal with that, to try and address that that um, that problem, much as we would now, you know, in the same in the same way. But the results of the Evian conference are really, you know, depressingly meagre because the the outside world basically says, well, you know, we're full. Whatever country it was, we say, well, we're full, so we're not going to take anybody. But we think that this country should, or the, or you know, the Latin American countries should. And then the Latin American countries stand up and say, well, we're not taking them. You Europeans should take them. It's your problem, right? So they just kind of play political football with it. And in the end, nothing, nothing is nothing is done. Nothing is arranged. There are no. There's no real provision made for those Jews to get out. The only excuse you can give to those people is to say, well, they, didn't, they couldn't see the future. They couldn't see that the Holocaust was coming, which is fair enough. But at the same time, the conference and the attitudes represented in it are very instructive because this is, you know, the Jews are just someone else's problem. Let's not, let's not um, you know, put ourselves out. Let's not change our immigration quotas. Let's not do anything out of the ordinary because let's just kick the problem down the road. You know, they're just kicking the can down the road. Someone else will pick it up. It's fine. You know, it's, it's, it's only the Jews. They're just complaining like they always do. So the bottom line, fair enough, they can't see the future. But the bottom line is basically low-level anti-Semitism that motivates that response. And you see it again in 1943, in the summer of 1943, where there's another conference at Bermuda this time between the British and the Americans to try and address the same problem and say, well, what are we going to do about this, about the Jews? By this stage, they know the Holocaust is going on. They don't necessarily know chapter and verse of how it's happening precisely, but they know it's happening. Um, they knew that from, from the end of 1942. 
But the end result is the same, is, well, we're not going to do this. We're not going to do what you know, the Jewish or the Zionist interest lobbies were, were push, pushing for, which was opening up Palestine. The British weren't going to do that for political reasons. The Americans weren't going to open up their immigration system. So they basically kind of said, well, steady as she goes and we'll do nothing and, and you know, concentrate on winning the war. So the narrative becomes the best way to ease Jewish suffering is to win the war. So we put all of our effort into that, right? And that becomes the narrative. But there's a lot, as I say in the book, there was there is a lot that would have been possible to alleviate Jewish suffering, even in '43, in terms of supplying food and you know supplying medical supplies and so on. It, it would have been possible through. It's difficult, but it would have been possible through the Red Cross and others to to have to have done something or at least tried something. And at the same time, you know, you've got this, as I said before, this this um, diplomatic wrestle is going on to recognise these passports that could have helped thousands of Jews to survive the Holocaust. But the outside world, Latin American governments didn't want to step up, didn't want to recognize those passports. They, because they didn't want large numbers of Jews, they imagined that these Jews would suddenly appear you know, on the doorstep and, and demand to get into Paraguay or wherever it was. That was never the plan, but they imagined that was going to be a problem. So they, they didn't want to recognize those passports. And they're actually encouraged in this reluctance by the U.S. State Department, which is saying, well, even in 1944, the U.S. State Department is saying, well, we don't, we don't think that these Jews who have arranged these false passports should be allowed to benefit from illegal activity. It's insane. You know, this is the people trying to save their lives and the State Department is standing in the way. So the short answer to all of, to your question, to go back to your question, Lauren, you know, why did the outside world really not do much? I think is quite simply low-level anti-Semitism. It's not the same anti-Semitism as the Nazis. It's not that sort of metastasized, you know, murderous, exterminatory anti-Semitism that the Nazis are espousing and are putting into practice. But it's it's a sort of low-level, old-fashioned anti-Semitism. Oh, it's just the Jews, you know, they always complain, um, kick the can down the road and we'll see what happens in, in, you know, in a few years' time. It's that sort of level. So what's interesting here, I think, is that we look back and we imagine that the outside world was kind of eager to do something to help because that's how we wish it was. And actually, the reaction of most of the outside world is one at best of indifference to Jewish suffering, even when they knew what was going on after 42. And actually, you know, perversely, you end up with a situation that the greatest friend on the international scene that European Jews seem to have during the Holocaust is actually the Polish government in exile in London, which will surprise a lot of Jews because, you know, Poland has a, a fairly bad reputation as regards its, you know, its own problems with anti-Semitism and the rest of it. And even its wartime record, certainly, you know, for those Jews that were still in Poland is checkered to say the least. So for a lot of people, that would sound surprising, but that is borne out by the history. You know, the, the, the Jews' best friend internationally was the Polish government in exile. And for those who did step up and were involved in the Wadosh operation, were there any repercussions for those involved? Up to a point. So Rudolf Hoogley, who was the, the honorary consul that they used, he was removed from his post. When the, when the Swiss tried to close this all down in, in, through 1943, which they did reasonably effectively, um, they started off just trying to interrogate and, and intimidate the members of the group themselves, the people actually doing the, doing the job. But that, was, that sort of ran into the sand legally because there was, there, essentially there were 
there wasn't enough of a crime being committed for them to actually, you know, break up the group. So they went after the honorary consuls who were helping them and supplying them with documents. And that was more successful. So Rudolf Hugli, the honorary consul for Paraguay, was removed from his post, as were others who were assisting them at a lower level. And this, of course, creates the diplomatic problem because the Paraguayans were then involved and they realised that there's been some misdemeanours carried out by the Swiss honorary consul. So they're then alerted to the problem, um, which prompts that whole diplomatic wrestle that I mentioned earlier on. Um, so he certainly felt the, felt the effects of it. I mean, he, he, Hoogley actually ends up as a very rich man. He must do by the end of the war. He kind of disappears. He's a very shadowy individual. So he kind of disappears from the record. But he, he, he would have been made fantastically rich by all of this because he was the only one that was actually, actually making any money out of it. No one else made any money except for him. So, but yeah, he disappears presumably to a, to a rather comfortable retirement. But the others, no, they, there were threats always. There were threats that they would be deported and, and that they would have their you know, diplomatic status revoked and so on. But, but it, it didn't happen. They just kind of disappeared into obscurity, in, in effect, because, as I said, the, the, the communists come to power in, in Poland in '45. The diplomats are effectively sidelined because the, the Western world, the outside world, recognises the communists fairly swiftly. So they're left out on a limb and, they, and they, they're scattered to the four winds. So, you know, one of them goes to live in Canada, another one goes to live in Argentina. Wadosh himself goes to Paris, later ends up in Warsaw. He goes back to Warsaw, dies in Warsaw in, I think, 63. And the most tragic case, actually, was um, one of the group called Konstanty Rokitsky. And he's the one who actually filled out most of the passports. So that there's a very distinctive handwriting on the passports. That's Rokitsky's handwriting. And he stayed in Switzerland and really didn't, didn't find his feet after the war. He ended up getting divorced and died of cancer in 1958. He end, went, ended up in sort of men's homeless hostels and that sort of thing. So he really had a, a very grim end. Died of cancer and you know, buried in a pauper's grave. And this is someone that um, now, thankfully, has been recognised as, as righteous among the nations as a, as a Holocaust rescuer. So his uh, reward came very much posthumously, unfortunately, for him. Finally, Roger, why is it so important for us to discuss the Wadosh operation today? I think it is important. I think it, it sheds an important light, I think, on some of the points that sort of occurred to me as I was writing the book. It sheds a very stark light on a, on a few aspects of, of Holocaust history itself. I mean, not least that, that legalistic one that we started with uh, at the beginning. That's something that I didn't really appreciate before, how actually legalistic the, the preparations for the Holocaust were. It makes sense, but you know, it's something that maybe needed to be pointed out. So this book certainly points that out. And I think it, it, it also, I think, sheds a light on that sort of diplomatic aspect that the outside world, as I said, we imagine that the outside world was, was eager and willing to help and was just frustrated by circumstances or lack of knowledge or whatever it would be. Again, this book makes clear that that was not the case. That is a rose-tinted, you know, rose-tinted hindsight view of how things were. You know, the outside world kind of knew by 1942, but was really fundamentally unwilling to do anything material to assist. And so that, I think, is an important addition to, the, to our understanding of the Holocaust um, and the response to it. And lastly, I think, I think the case of Poland. I mean, as I said before, Poland has this uh, in some circles at least, has a, has a very bad reputation in terms of being seen as being even sort of complicit in the Holocaust, which I would add is nonsense. But to actually be able to point up that in, in this case, you know, here are 
Polish diplomats and Polish politicians in London absolutely standing up and doing the right thing, and often at risk to themselves and at cost to themselves. I think that's, that's an important corrective. I think it's an important part of a very complex narrative. The great problem with a lot of this complex history is, is its oversimplification in the public sphere. And this is just re reinserting a sort of a degree of complexity and saying, well, hang on, you know, Poland is you know, a very difficult place to be, hugely difficult place to be during the war, whether as a Pole or as a Jew. And you know, let's just look at this holistically. Let's look at, not look at the Jewish history in isolation, but to look at it in concert with the history of the Polish neighbors and the Poles who assisted. You know, there are more Polish righteous among the nations than any other nation, which tells you a lot. So I think this is just is a contribution in, in terms of that aspect, to, to a contribution to the comp sheer complexity of Poland's wartime history. That was Roger Morehouse, a historian and author of The Forgers, The Forgotten Story of the Holocaust's Most Audacious Rescue Operation, which is out now published by Bodley Head. And if you found this story interesting, then make sure you check out our recent episode with Daniel Finkelstein, whose family story intersects with this one. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.